Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we're going to hear from poet, writer, podcaster, and general friend of the program, Saeed Jones, about his latest poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World. The poems in the book feature some beloved historical figures like Maya Angelou and Billie Holiday, and also some people from Saeed's own life. Then we're going to talk to best-selling novelist Sylvia Moreno-Garcia about her book, The Daughter of Dr. Moreau. The Library Journal called it historical science fiction at its best. We're going to find out what it was like for Sylvia growing up as a kid who was allowed to watch horror movies when she was like five years old, and then how when she was a teenager, her classmates thought she was a witch, and how that could, you know, impact your writing style, I guess. And then we're going to get some music from the American folk band, The Lowest Pair. It's going to be a great show. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's all right. I'm a little under the weather this week. I think you can hear... My voice is scratchy, so I may lean on you to carry us through the program. Oh, okay. Well, then uh, my voice is very scratchy, too. Please don't give me any responsibility. Okay, fine. (laughs) We'll just meet in the middle somewhere. Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. All right. This is where I'm going to quiz Elena on a spot in the country where Livewire is on the radio. She's got to guess where I am talking about. Uh, This city is called The City Beneath the Rim Rocks. The rim rocks, which are also known as the rims, they're 300, 800-foot sandstone formations. The other nickname for this city is the Magic City due to how fast it grew after a railroad was built there. Okay. I'm feeling wild, wild west. Wild west, yeah. Hmm. Um, How about this? It was home to Martha Canary, a.k.a. Calamity Jane. Uh, Dead, Deadwood, South Dakota, based oh, on the TV close. show. <laughs> more, that was a great character on that show, by the way. Oh, my favorite, yeah. Uh, we're going more Montana. Bozeman. It also starts with a B. You're getting closer. Billings, Montana. Absolutely, Billings, hey! Montana, where we're on KEMCFM, a.k.a. Yellowstone Public Radio, where we've what, just what? been added. So <gasps> shout out to everyone out there in the big sky state listening in Billings. All right, should we uh, get to the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's... Live Wire! 
This week, poet Saeed Jones. I like to get right to it. You know, the secret is make straight white men nervous from the jump. Yeah. Just nip it at the bud, honey. And writer Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. I would say I was not lonely. I was lonesome, and I kind of like that. And like living in my interior world, that's probably why I became a writer. With music from The Lowest Pair and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in from all over the country, including beautiful Billings, Montana. We have a really interesting and fun show in store for everyone uh, this week. Uh, one of the folks we're talking to, Sylvia Moreno Garcia. She grew up in a household where she was allowed to watch like horror movies when she was a little kid. We wanted to find out from our audience. We asked them to tell us about something they were into as a kid that no other kid liked. So we're going to hear those responses coming up in a few minutes. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show. There is still some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news that you heard this week? Okay, so I'm going a little rogue this week. Um, you know, I've been traveling a bit uh, for the past couple weeks. Uh, I've been following it on Instagram. You've been covering a range of experiences in this great country. Yes, multiple climate zones. And I was in the desert in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where a dear friend of mine teaches at an amazing school. Uh, and I know we're on in Albuquerque. And okay. I just, uh, the news of the week is that the kids are all right. Because this school, the Albuquerque Academy's sixth and seventh grade opera club, put on a show. I have a program from it. It's called Off the Rails. They wrote it themselves. There were about 75 kids in it. It seemed like they wrote it themselves. They wrote all the lyrics. There was an amazing teacher there who helped arrange all the songs into an opera. They thought about all the big principles of opera, you know, like epic characters. And these are, you know, like 12 and 13 year old students. And they did a lot of like cool, like found costumes and it was every single word came from the minds of these amazing young performers. And let me tell you, this play, which was about the struggles of women over time, had everything. There was a pigeon lady <laughs> and a pyromaniac who were like secretly in, they were in love, but they were trying to work through each other's problems. There was a strong man named Big Hunk who was dealing <laughs> with toxic masculinity and he couldn't stop crying. And everybody had to, you know, he wasn't allowed to cry because he was a strong man. But strong man Big Hunk was played by this amazing young actress whose and her mustache kept falling off. And she just handled it with all of this like joy and aplomb. There was a tap dancing 1950s house husband who was struggling with the like oppression of the time singing and dancing in a million costume changes. And I, David, you know, who was a playwright and a screenwriter, my husband, he and I had the time of our lives. It's literally the best play that I have seen in years. So shout out to Albuquerque Academy for off the rails coming soon to a Broadway stage near you. I would go to more opera if it dealt more with like toxic masculinity and not like, 
I don't know, Bluebeard's Castle, where it's just like, I got this big castle, uh, and I really don't want you to go into any of those rooms because there's some not great stuff. And now we're going to sing about that for about 3.5 hours. So much of opera is about toxic masculinity and the oppression of women now that I think about it. So this is a real, a real nice compliment to that tradition. Like Wagner never mentioned Snapchat once. No. That's why it's not relatable to me. Yeah, and those Greeks, I mean, good Lord, those Greek operas. (laughs) Speaking of kids doing the darndest things, uh, my best news story is also about a kid doing something um, pretty cute. Two-year-old Juliana Allen of Panama City, Florida, took a visit to a pet store with her mom a few months ago and happened to see a two-year-old white tree frog named George. I don't know if it was named George in the store or if (laughs) Juliana gave George that name. But Juliana, two years old, sees this frog and says, Mom, please, can we get this frog? And she basically talks the mom into it, even though they've already got a dog and a cat. But the mom does not have a heart of stone. She says, okay, we'll get the frog. Uh, By the way, this frog had been given up by its previous owners, raising the question, is it that hard to take care of a frog? Yeah, what? Who rehomes a frog? Anyway, this has actually turned out well because Juliana and George have bonded in a way that is just like something out of a a Disney movie or something. The frog perches happily on Juliana's shoulder as she watches TV and eats breakfasts. Or when she sits in her stroller, he rides around with her around the house. She's taken him to her grandmother's parents to show him off. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to see this over the connection, but this is a photograph, Elena, I'm showing you of Juliana (laughs) taking George's pulse with her toy stethoscope. Every morning when she gets up, according to her mom, I mean, Juliana is still very young and has fairly limited language she says basically to her mom every morning she wakes up and the first thing she says is baby frog and then i just have to bring her george <laughs> now this is a thing too because you always wonder what's going on really in the mind of an animal and a pet you know we love them a lot we think like my cat here bubbles i think that i'm making her life better when i like pick her up and play her like a banjo on her stomach i mean does she enjoy that probably not But we just kind of never know. The thing about tree frogs that's interesting is they actually turn a certain color when they are stressed or threatened. So these particular tree frogs are called white tree frogs. They turn dark brown. But when Juliana is carrying George around, he is green and turquoise, which are relaxed colors for a white tree frog. All pets should have some kind of (laughs) fur color change to tell us if they're liking what's going on or not. All pets should be mood rings. That's exactly right. You're right. Maybe that's what I need. Not a cat. I just need a mood ring. You just need a mood ring. You could take its temperature with a little toy stethoscope. (laughs) The uh, unlikely friendship of Juliana Allen and George the Tree Frog. That's the best news that I saw this week. All right, let's invite our first guest on over to the show. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and GQ. His stunning memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, was the recipient of the 2019 Kirkus Prize for Nonfiction. U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Lamone calls his latest collection, Alive at the End of the World, a serious argument for community and the rebellion of joy. Take a listen to Saeed Jones right here on Livewire. This was from a show we recorded in partnership with the Portland Book Festival. Saeed, welcome back to the show. Hi, honey. How are you? It's so good to see you. The last time we talked, uh, you were 
at your home in Columbus and yes. you had just gotten a dog named Caesar yes. <laughs> and it was during the pandemic and we were literally looking for anyone we oh, could yeah. talk to. <laughs> And we saw on, like, I don't know, the internet that you had gotten a dog, and we said, that sounds like yep. 20 minutes of radio. Yeah, month one. Month yeah. one of lockdown. You're like, yeah. do you have time? I was like, yes, I have time. Are you kidding me? When do you need me? What are we going to talk? We talk about anything. Sure, dog? Okay, I'll bring the dog. Yeah. Yes. It was great. Thank you for your being generous Thank with your you. time. Now, your new book, Alive at the End of the World, you have a line in it where you, you say, did I just trick myself into writing another memoir? <laughs> right? We had you on for How We Fight for Our Lives, yes. your memoir about your life and your mm -hmm. mother and everything. Is this book of poetry something where you also accidentally wrote another <laughs> memoir? I think I did trick myself. Yeah, mm. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, I write poetry collections one poem at a time. And so I'm just kind of focused on, you know, these very, to me, minor kind of moments of, of deep humanity. But yeah, when you begin to step back and you're like mm. 20 poems, 30 poems and everything, it is a bit surprising. And um, I think I uh, had a lot more clearly to unpack. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, in reading this this book, it it really struck me as a person who was working through a lot of pain, mm -hmm. including mm -hmm. the section where you're annoyed at an audience member who asks you basically the question I just asked you. <laughs> <laughs> I like to get right to it. You know, the secret is make straight white men nervous from the jump. Yeah. Just nip it at the bud, honey. Uh-huh, getting stressed. Fix your posture. Uh, <laughs> I can't even remember what we were talking about. I was just so excited to get to... Where, I, I mean, where's this book? Just, I saw an opening. And I, I, guess my, I guess my real question is, was it cathartic for you to write about these things in the book, or was it re-traumatizing? Mm, it was not re-traumatizing. I, I don't find writing... I don't know. I mean, I, I've never found it to be uh, traumatizing. I don't know. I mean, it, it's too hard. It's too much of a craft. I, too much joy. It, it's it's our, our engine, so... How could that hurt me um, is kind of how I feel. Um, I think it was cathartic, though, in the sense that, well, one, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but the world is ending. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I felt thinking about dystopia and the apocalypse. I mean, there's an entire genre of not just literature, it's like culture and every form about the dystopia and what happens. And um, but who who's entrusted to be the hero or the historian in those stories? It's a pretty narrow mm -hmm. aperture. And I was like, well, why not? Why can't that person that we entrust? The, the history and the perspective of like, here's what's going down, here's what we need to pack up and carry, and here's what we need to leave to poison. Why can't that person be a black queer person who's, who's grieving? Mm -hmm. Why not? Yeah. Um, we're talking to Saeed Jones. His new book is Alive at the End of the World. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about Maya Angelou and Billie Holiday. Oh. <laughs> and the intersection of those two, Ooh, one, of the, one of the best titles for a poem that I've ever seen in a moment here on Livewire. Stay with us. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, 
Now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this league of extraordinary listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Hey, welcome back to LiveWire. Here at the Portland Book Festival. Coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Uh, this week we are talking to Saeed Jones about his latest collection of poetry. It's called Alive at the End of the World. Can we, uh, can we hear a poem from the book? Sure, sure, yeah. So, so um, I guess for a little, in, in addition to, yeah, you're right, tricking myself into writing another memoir. Um, I, my mother, um, Carol Sweet Jones, uh, died of heart disease um, just over a decade ago. Um, And so it was like right in the middle of, well, last year was the 10-year anniversary um, of her passing, right? So in the depth of this pandemic, you know, and you know all the detail, y'all were there, we are there, right? Um, I I was thinking about that because, of course, when you're grieving, I mean, it it is an ongoing relationship. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a new phase in your relationship with who you miss, right? And, I, you know, you often think, like, I wish they were here. God, I I wish I could tell them, like, how much fun I had or whatever. Um, But the thing is, in the middle of the pandemic, I was like, okay, well, your mother died of heart disease, which disproportionately kills black women in this country. It's like, if if it's not, like, uh, giving birth in this country, it's heart disease for black women. Mm -hmm. Statistically, it's horrifying. Um, And she worked at an airport in Atlanta in the state of Georgia. So I was like, you sure you want to bring her back for this? You know, like, so, so I think with this book, I was thinking so much about 
the afterlife of grief. That's what I've come to call it. And uh, this poem's about that afterlife vibe. A Stranger. I wonder if my dead mother still thinks of me. I know I don't know her new name. I don't know her. Not now. I don't know if her is the word burning in a stranger's mind when he sees my dead mother walking down the street in her bright black dress. I wonder if he inhales the cigarette smoke that will eventually kill him and thinks, I wish I knew a woman who was both the light and every shadow the light pierces. I wonder if a passing glance at my dead mother is enough to make a poet out of anyone. I wonder if I'm the song she hums as she waits for the light to change. Thank you. you. Saeed Jones, reading from Alive at the End of the World. You... You have a line, it's actually kind of in the sort of after notes of this book mm-hmm. that just absolutely floored me. You wrote, you don't get to decide when an experience is done with you. It's true. <laughs> That's intense. Learn it now. Um, and I also heard a lot of nods of right, but it's true, right? I mean, I think my theory is it has something to do with capitalism, honestly. Um, <laughs> The ethos of American capitalism is that move on, get up, because you got to get back to work. Right. Grief, depression, gender journeys, you know, all of these, you know, candor, intelligence, you know, is deeply inconvenient for capitalism. Yeah. Right. You know, so we really have this ethos, right, built into us, like move on, pick it up. And so I think that, yeah, it's like, you know, you feel the pressure. No one has to say it to you. Right. I think America is really good at like teaching us how to bully ourselves, Mm -hmm. you know, but no, it's not up to you. You know, when when you get to stop crying and then then that manifests in the poem is like it's not up to me when I get to stop crying. Right. Like, yeah. yeah, And I think that's true. I mean, you all kinds of relationships, breakups, even jobs. You know, I've had an experience where I had a job and I left and years later. I was like still mad at a boss I hadn't spoken (laughs) to. And you you know what I mean? Like, you know, and so I wanted to I think grief like queerness has opened me up to understanding so much of so many aspects of humanity. It's the most, you know, grieving and being queer, I think are two of the most humanizing experiences of my life. And, and so, yeah, I, I found, I found power in acknowledging that perhaps I'm still enthralled to a dynamic that I would very much like to move on from or claim a sense of power in relation to, but like maybe, maybe I'm less in control than I thought, which is like, did I just trick myself? Right. Into, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a poem in this book with the title Performing as Miss Calypso Maya Angelou dances whenever she forgets the lyrics Which Billie Holiday, seated in the audience, finds annoying <laughs> Is any part of that a real thing that happens? Yes, yes. Maya, Maya Angelou, Dr. Maya Angelou uh, wrote it, uh, it, it I can't remember the title, but it's in one of her memoirs One of her memoirs, she wrote about it several decades later. Um, but yeah, yeah, early in, Maya Angelou's just like a fascinating figure. And I tell people, I think, you know, I appear in the book, a lot of ghosts, um, and then also a lot of um, black 
kind of cultural icons, Little Richard, Diane Carroll, Toni Morrison, Paul Mooney. Paul Mooney. Oh, love the Paul Mooney. But, but Maya, I tell people, is I think arguably the happiest person in the poem because she's just like, we'll do it. Like, like she, at that point in her life, she was performing um, with the, under the stage name Miss Calypso in the Bay Area. Uh, not a very good singer, um, but a great dancer. She was always an incredible dancer. And so literally when she would forget the lyrics... She, and I mean, she was, I mean, look at pictures from Maya. I mean, I think Maya was beautiful her whole life, but whoa, whoa. And at this point in her life, like she'd be performing, forget the lyrics, and she'd just go, I appear to have forgotten the lyrics. And then like she would then do a dance. <laughs> kind of till she got back to, you know, and so obviously the men and I was like, you can forget the lyrics all you want. <laughs> And then, so, so then, you know, decades later, and one, you know, because she, um, uh, Maya Angelou wrote like a series of, of, of memoirs, you know, she lived so many lives, which is another interesting, you know, parallel with the book. Um, Billie Holiday turns out to be in the audience uh, and comes to talk to her in the green room. And I think they saw each other like, like she visited her at her home later and did not get along. They did not like each other. Uh, Maya Angelou is really homophobic. Because of rumors about um, Billie Holiday's bisexuality, so uh, she and she says, I mean, very transparent in her own writing. It's like I just didn't think very highly of her. But um, Billie Holiday, imagine, I mean, you know, I think there's a direct line from Billie Holiday to like maybe the caliber of Whitney Houston. So imagine you're on stage just getting along, being your little, doo, doo, doo. you know, you think it's cute, <laughs> and you look out, and then there's like there is the artist of the form that you are on stage making a joke of in mm. front of her. And so in the green room, this is what Maya Angelou said, Billie Holiday told her, you're going to be famous, but it won't be for singing. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That was the end. There's one album, one music album in all of Maya Angelou's life she recorded. It was Miss Calypso. That was it. A rap. So I'm like, well, I guess Billie Holiday was right. And then Billie Holiday di- like died a few years later. It's incredible. Yeah. What are the odds? <laughs> well, you mentioned Whitney Houston, and you yes. have a poem about Diane Carroll mm-hmm. in, the, uh, Bever- in a Beverly Hills hotel mm-hmm. and a bathtub, in a bath. mm-hmm. which to me very much seemed like it's also a poem about Whitney Houston. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know? that's a parallel. I mean, because because yeah. of the circumstances around her passing and also her life. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you seeing a connection between all of the women that you're writing about in this book, including your mother? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think you see me on the page examine and perform my distress, um, my, my peril, like my sense of like, oh, what's going on and everything like that. And I think it's always important, you know, I mean, I, I think a great deal about um, intersectionality and everything like that and, and what's going on in our country. But as much as I'm freaked out, it's like, you know who, who it's really hard for in this country? It's like black women, mm-hmm. black trans women, you know? So I, I, I think it's important, you know, even as I'm like owning, y'all are freaking me out, you know, you're stressing out Saeed. I also think it's important for me to think like, well, what else? Like who else is, you know, going through this? And in thinking about my mom's experiences and certainly the women who appear in the book, I'm like, yeah, it's like, yeah, Saeed, you have a certain privilege to speak out about your age, your rage and your distress. It's very dangerous for black women to be as vocal. You know, I mean, you know, a black woman says the sky is blue and you see the pushback, you see the disrespect. You note at the end of the book, certain poems being nonfiction, yeah. which presumes the existence of fictional poems. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to understand the difference because aren't all poems nonfiction on some level? Because it's an experience. It's a feeling like what's the difference between a nonfiction poem and a fiction poem for you? 
Um, I've written poems and certainly read poems to other people that could be a short story, mm-hmm. you know, in a different, I mean, persona, you know, um, yeah, you know, Billie Holiday, Maya Angelou. I mean, that's not, I mean, it's, it's based on something in truth, but I'm, I'm taking on Maya Angelou as a character, okay. you know, um, the dynamic, the, the capital T truth may be present, but is it accurate, factual? No. So okay. I, I, I liked uh, trying to identify for the reader these specific moments, like this is a nonfiction poem where um, it, essentially like looking at poetry's potential to kind of function as a personal essay. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, is the Would you consider the Luther Vandross poem nonfiction or fiction? Ooh, that's a good, I mean, it's definitely closer to nonfiction. I mean, it's, yeah, I think it is nonfiction in that I, I tried to, Every detail in the poem is, yeah, something he went through in his life, pretty specific. Like, he, w- he would, like, in, if you read um, an excellent biography of his by Craig Seymour, and they were pretty close on what, like, Luther never used pronouns when talking about his relationship. Like, he was so closeted. Mm. He, was, he, was, he was very strategic. So he, he wouldn't say, he would just say, I'm in love. Mm-hmm. I'm in love, and it's so great. He wouldn't, he was very careful, you know? Well, you write that this poem... Uh, that is about Luther Vandross is you made it intentionally difficult to read aloud yes. as a reference to how Luther Vandross would like yeah, yeah. collaborate. Yeah, Luther was a bitch. It was great. <laughs> I, you know, I get it. I mean, who wouldn't be? You know, under those, you know, the class is a very stressful place to be. Turns out it makes you not so nice. Um, but yeah, he was also, you know, genius and rigorous. You know, the whiz. You yeah. know the Wiz? Yeah, we yeah. love the... Okay, thank you. All right. It was, it was on I national television. I was in Portland. It was, Black people know the Wiz. Okay, we got it. It was on national television <laughs> when there was like three channels. You got it. Luther Vandross wrote two songs for it when he was a teenager. What? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the, the range of his talent. Um, I think, honestly, just weight and sexuality would have totally changed the dynamics of his career. Um, Anyway, so he was really rigorous in the studio, and he gets to the point at his peak, he's consistently collaborating with people like Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. And if even Aretha, while singing, recording, would mispronounce a li- he would stop. I assumed you they, were referencing like a... into whole arguments. Oh, I whole thought you just arguments. meant like a random... I didn't, others, I didn't realize that, that Aretha, Aretha Franklin was. Yeah, yeah. The quote <laughs> is, I mean, he because it happens. And they were, I mean, they, they would fuss and break up. and f- They were very much like frenemies. It was really interesting. They made up towards the end of his life, which I think was good. Um, what did he say? He, he interrupted her, and she said, who has the most number one albums? Luther. Oh. <laughs> and he said, how long has it been since your last one? Because <laughs> <laughs> when I tell you, like, studying history and going into this to, like, keep, I was like, whoa, I'm a lot, a reason to live for another day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Well, we are very glad to have you here with us and glad to have this piece of work. It's Alive at the End of the World by Saeed Jones. Saeed, thank you so much. That was Saeed Jones right here on Livewire as part of the Portland Book Festival. His poetry collection, Alive at the End of the World, is available now. You can also hear Saeed on the weekly podcast, Vibe Check, which he co-hosts with Sam Sanders and Zach Stafford. I love that podcast. It is a delight. It's the best. I feel like I've learned something and I feel like I have three best friends. Oh my God, shout out to that podcast. Yeah, we had Sam on the show recently talking about it and now I've become a regular listener to Vibe Check. So get it as they say wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, special thanks this episode to Christian Fulgham of Shoreline, Washington and Sarah Doan of Portland, Oregon. 
Christian and Sarah are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month. And that is a really big deal, because without donations like that, we could not keep doing the show, which would be a tremendous bummer for all of us. So thank you, Sarah and Christian, for keeping Livewire going. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we ask our listeners a question. Uh, This week we asked them to tell us about something you were into as a kid that no other kid liked. Elena, you've been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Okay, occasionally a question inspires our executive producer to uh, enter in, or whose name is Laura. And I wonder if maybe... So we have a Laura Haddon sighting? I think this might be our Laura. There is no last name attached to this, but doesn't this sound like our girl to you? Laura says, I was strangely obsessed as a child with the first wives club. I somehow convinced my friends to do the dance from the end at my middle school talent show, and I'm pretty sure they never forgave me. (laughs) Wow. I love that. Because I'll be honest, that doesn't seem like the big demo for that movie was middle schoolers. No, no, not at all. Uh, What else are one of our listeners or possibly uh, employees of the show reporting (laughs) as something that they were into as a kid? We don't work with anybody named Wendell. So I think Wendell is uh, a listener who said that as a kid, Wendell was obsessed with at-home workout videos. And I feel like this is a dying breed, but I totally remember this. My mom had Jane Fonda workout, Mm -hmm. Buns of Steel. Yeah, whatever whatever the latest, uh, you know, VHS tape that was being pitched to change your life, as it were. Like sweating to the oldies with Richard Simmons or whatever. (laughs) You know, I met Richard Simmons once in person at a radio station that I was working at, and he was exactly how you would hope Richard Simmons would be. He smelled great, he had amazing hair, he sang me a song in the hallway of the radio station. This was not even for air. He was just Richard Simmonsing it up. Thank you for telling me this. I'd like to change my best news to that story that you just (laughs) told me. (laughs) And then I dressed up as Richard Simmons for Halloween the next year, Uh uh, but then I carried the signed headshot I'd gotten from Richard Simmons so I could refer people to it, like, this is who I'm trying to look like. (laughs) And then I lost it on Halloween. And so, Richard, if you hear this... Could you send me another signed headshot, please? That's and one for request. me, and one for me, and one okay, for me. Okay, we'll take two, please. Okay. Uh, what's something else that one of our listeners was into as a kid that's a little bit maybe unusual? Oh, talk about unusual. Ty says, I was obsessed with cleaning. I used to beg my mom to let me mop the floors, and then I would cry when I couldn't do it. <laughs> what a dream child. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. going to get me one. All I have is a Roomba that fights with the cat all day. I need a... I need a small human child who's got like, you know, really, really tidy tendencies. Does your Roomba cry when you don't let it uh, attack your kitchen floor? No, but I will tell you that the cat has learned how to turn on the Roomba when it wants to wake me up because there's a giant flat button on the top that turns green when you hit it. And if I will not emerge from my chambers in the morning and the cat wants me to, she will turn the Roomba on now. So I could... I consider them to be in cahoots. She's too smart. <laughs> I know, right? Hey, thanks to everyone who sent in responses uh, to our listener question. Of course, we've got a question for next week's show, which we will reveal at the end of today's program. So stick around for that. In the meantime, our next guest had, let's just say, a unique childhood. Her parents let her watch horror movies when she was like five, and which led her to uh, be declared a witch by some of her classmates. Now, it all turned out okay, because these days she's the best-selling novelist of many books, 
Her writing has been called a thing of wonder by the New York Times. She's written numerous critically acclaimed novels, including Mexican Gothic. Library Journal describes her latest work, The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, as historical science fiction at its best. Here is our conversation with Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, recorded as part of the Portland Book Festival last year. Hi, Sylvia. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Do you have a specific memory of when you first picked up the H.G. Wells version of the, the Island of Dr. Moreau, and did it make a big impression on you? Yeah, I was a teenager, and back in the old days in Mexico, we didn't have young adult fiction or children's fiction. We just had classical novels. So if you were a teenager, you read The Three Musketeers or Journey to the Center of the Earth, that kind of stuff. So that was children's literature, and I picked it up at that point. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. That was what was available. It wasn't, like, scary to you, or, I mean, some of this stuff you write. I think there's a, in the foreword, you sort of thank your mother for letting you see scary movies when you were a kid or something? Yeah, my mother was a big scary movie fan. The first scary movie that I saw, I was five years old, and she took me to see Aliens. <laughs> is that the one where the alien, like, comes out of the person? Well, it's the second one, so the alien is bigger. It's an alien queen. Oh, oh and that's she's the one where the alien comes the... out of its mouth. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. She's laying all the eggs at the end? Yes. Do she you, does. I mean, have, as a five-year-old, how do you interpret that information as a five-year-old child? Well, the, the reason why we went to see Aliens is because we were living, I'm from Baja California, from the north of Mexico, and the town that we were li- living in at the time, the power went off in our neighborhood, and so there was no air conditioning, and it's a, it's very, it was very warm in the summer. So my mother said, we're going to the one place in town that has air conditioning, and that was the movie theater. <laughs> but back then, there were no multiplexes. It was a one single screen. Everybody went to see the same movie. And the movie that was playing that night was Aliens. Mm. So we got seats in the front row. That was what it was like. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So my mother just said, there's going to be a monster on the screen, but it's not real. <laughs> Do you think that that, <laughs> I mean, maybe not that specific moment, but just that kind of relationship with things that can seem scary, having access to that as a kid, do you think that that has impacted your voice as a writer and the kind of things you go towards? Yeah, I I have a deep love for horror fiction. I've edited several horror fiction anthologies, magazines, all that kind of stuff, and I've written several horror stories. I really love it. It's one of the lesser genres where people think that it's the lesser genre. It's the dirty genre because when you say, I like to read or write horror fiction, people go, why? You look very normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're thinking of the kind of lowest common denominator, uh, you know, Friday the 13th or something that's a, where it's more just a slasher than the yeah. complex actual kind of literary characteristics that can exist. Yes, of course. Uh, although I do love kind of lowbrow <laughs> fiction, too. Um, yeah. there, there's a kind of purity and a beauty in some of those Text. And, I, and I used to like reading horror comic books in Mexico when I was growing up, and they were very low, bro. It was, um, there was always a, something chasing a woman with big titties on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> it was a skeleton, but then the next issue was a vampire, and uh-huh. then I would have killed was a werewolf. gotten my hands on some of those <laughs> comics as a kid. Um, you, your book, The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, has been described as sort of a, 
uh, a, a reimagining of the original with uh, certainly a more feminist perspective. It's it's not a prequel. It's not a sequel. It is a reimagining. What does that mean in terms of the plot and kind of how close to the original you were versus using your own license? It skews pretty far from the original. It just takes some of the ideas that are handled in the original and a couple of characters, but it kind of moves in its own direction. I don't like... Uh, a lot of remakings where only one element changes. So, for example, with um, Disney, they do this a lot. They'll be like, oh, now it's Dumbo, but it's like CGI Dumbo. And I'm like, what do I care? I like the drawing of the elephant. It, there was you. nothing wrong with it. I yeah. thought I was losing my mind or just maybe not in the demo for all the live action yeah. re releases of these films, which yeah. seem to be the original film, but now it's just people instead of the cartoons. You wanted to do something more inventive with your take on Dr. Moreau? Yes, I think uh, women of a certain age know that the Beast from Beauty and the Beast in the cartoon was hotter than <laughs> the live-action Beast. Yeah. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you used the original book as a jumping-off point, or the original story, but then where do you, without giving away too much of the plot, where do you kind of take it? Well, it's set in Yucatan, which is the south of Mexico, in the late 1800s. And what happens is that in that time period, there's a real sort of civil war going on in the peninsula. The west side is controlled by Mexican people, either of fully European descent or mixed indigenous and um, white descent. And then the eastern portion of the peninsula is controlled by Mayan people, and they are fighting with the west because they've been basically enslaved for a while, and after, you know, three, four centuries, it gets a little bit tiresome, so, <laughs> you know. And so they're in this civil war, and then in this little wedge on the side of the peninsula, there's British Honduras, and the British are there, and they are supporting the Maya, not because they're very nice, but they really feel that if they can get a free Maya state, they can have a protectorate. So everybody's kind of in this conflict, and, and that's when this story is taking place. So it's a completely different context, because the original novella, The Island of Dr. Moreau, takes place in an unnamed island in the middle of the ocean, like a lot of 19th century books take place in the town of M. You don't know where M is, and you're like, oh. So huh. the grounding really changes the mm -hmm. story, and you've got Mexican characters and, um, and a different kind of look at the animal creatures than what Wells does. So mm -hmm. I thought it was really fun, and you know, I don't know if, I don't think it's scary. Some people tell me, like, well, will I be terrified of this? And if not, I want my money back. And I'm like, man, that's a hard thing to promise. Yeah. I mean, I saw Aliens at Five. That's Nothing what I was is say. terrifying. I feel like your personal bar, Sylvia, is uh, slightly elevated. Uh, this week, we're coming to you as part of the Portland Book Festival here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Her latest book is The Daughter of Dr. Moreau. I think it's interesting that the, the main character, the daughter of Dr. Moreau, is Carlota, who is a very um, sheltered, sort of naive person because she's just lived in this one place and doesn't know a lot about her family history, her mom, things like that, which seems like the opposite of what your childhood was. Your parents were journalists. You moved around a lot. Like, you were not, doesn't, you saw aliens when you were five. Like, you were not overly sheltered. How do you get inside the head of writing a character like Carlota that's, very different from what your lived experience is. Well, it's very fun precisely because um, it's a completely different lived experience, but I do have, think we have some commonalities. I was an only child, so I would say I was not lonely, I was lonesome, and I kind of like that, and like living in my interior world, that's probably why I became a writer. I used to walk around the house and talk to myself. At some point, there were concerns about that situation. <laughs> 
shortly after you saw the horror movie as a baby. <laughs> yes. It was, I was a creepy child to a lot of adults because I was a very smart child. I started mm -hmm. reading from a very young age in both English and Spanish, and my, there were a lot of books in my house, and my parents really emphasized art and philosophy and literature and movies as being key components of life. And so you would get this small child that you know, is introduced at parties, and, <laughs> and I would be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm eight years old, and I'm, and I'm saying things, well, I was reading Shakespeare's sonnets, and I was considering that my favorite one is, and the adults are like, what is going on with this kid? That's interesting, because right? there's a scene at the beginning of the book where basically Carlota's doing that. Yes. Like, yes. her and dad that, is showing her off. Is that basically pulled from your real life? Yeah, my dad, my dad was very <laughs> proud of me as, um, he called it a very successful experiment. Oh. <laughs> Is this an autobiography? <laughs> <laughs> no, he just, um, his philosophy of life was that if you feel, I guess, I guess if you fill a child with a lot of knowledge and information and freedom, they'll come out really well as opposed to kind of repressing them in the traditional Catholic mode that other kids in my neighborhood were being repressed. Mm. So as a result of that, when I was 13, 12 or 13 years old in school, my classmates said that I was a Satanist. Oh. <laughs> because you were not sufficiently Catholic to fit into the normal milieu? Yes, I decided that I did not want to get a confirmation. I did not want, want to um, go through the full Catholicization process, and everybody else was getting their first communion and all that kind of stuff, and I said I didn't want to. And then I said that I really like, like horror novels, like It and Stephen King, and certain kind of music, Metallica and that kind of stuff. <laughs> so as a result of that, I was branded a witch. Nice. I am not kidding. Yeah. I am not kidding. Yeah, they said I was a witch. Yeah. Were, was that like upsetting to you at that age or did you feel like it was sort of good street cred? Yeah, it, it was like it saved me from a lot of beatings because what if they think that you're a literal witch? Yes. They're not yes, going to mess with you. People don't bug you that much when they think you're a master of the dark arts. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if there's a takeaway that you're hoping that folks will have after reading The Daughter of Dr. Moreau. I mean, it's a really compelling page turner. You just, as the reader, want to know what happens next. It's got a lot of really well-described scenes and plot. But is there an overarching message that you really want to try to send out with the book? I hope in general that people realize that Latin American authors or authors of Latin American descent have sometimes been pigeonholed in a specific type of writing and that we can do more than one type of writing. And this is just one Mexican story with science fiction elements and historical elements. But there's a lot of other stories that maybe traditionally have not been, people not, have not been able to tell them because the market has been pretty resistant to them. And I had rejections from publishers at certain points in my career where people just said, we're not going to... Well, my, my favorite one was the person who said, your name is too long <laughs> to go on a spine, and it's too weird. Oh, my gosh. And so that kind of stuff is, you know, there's all these potholes in the industry, and I hope that it just shows that there's many modes of writing that we can engage in, and there's a lot of talent probably out there that's untapped and a lot of stories to tell. Well, we, as the readers, are very happy that they fit your name on the spine of all these books. They're great. Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, everyone, right here on LiveWire. Thank you.
That was Sylvia Moreno-Garcia here on Livewire as part of the Portland Book Festival. Her latest book, The Daughter of Dr. Moreau, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with some incredible music from folk band The Lowest Pair. You're not going to want to miss it. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Before we get to our musical guest this week, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking about losing, but also about finding things with New Yorker writer Katherine Schultz. Her incredible book, Lost and Found, is about experiencing the loss of her father, uh, while at the same time she was finding and falling in love uh, with her wife. Catherine's got a Pulitzer Prize for her writing at The New Yorker. Uh, so you're going to want to definitely be there for that conversation. Also, Keenan Lowe will be stopping by. Now, Keenan Lowe was a big football star here in Oregon who returned to his hometown to coach a high school team and kind of like refine his purpose in life. And during that time, he found himself in a situation where a student brought a gun to school. He disarmed this student by hugging them. It's just an incredible story, and we're going to hear about it from Keenan. Then we've got music from one of our favorites, definitely the funniest musician we know, John Craigie. Uh, and we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? We want to know, what is the coolest thing that you have ever found? Nice. If you have a cool story about something that you found that was memorable, you can always share it with us by way of Twitter or Facebook. We are at Live Wire Radio on all of those places. All right, our musical guests this week met on the banks of the Mississippi. They've been touring the U.S. ever since, racking up over 500 shows across the country from Bellingham, Washington to Bangor, Maine. They've also released five albums of original work, including 2020's album A Perfect Plan, which No Depression magazine called A Perfect Album for the Moment. Their latest album is called Horse Camp. It's available now. Take a listen to this, some music from The Lowest Pair, recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theatre. What song are we going to hear? Um, we're going to do one off of our first record okay. called Pear Tree. All right. Yeah. This is The Lowest Pair on Livewire. I'd be craving you 
every atom, every cell, every ounce. And my love would still grow as the worms turned me to soil. There within the dirt my love would wait To be pulled up by the roots And turned into a sweet fruit Where I'd just hang around waiting to be ate See I would wait for you He just asked me to Till my body's laying low cold in the ground and even yet still I'd be craving you Every hour, every cell, every ounce I'd be supple and shiny And I'd be hanging low Just to stay within your reach Till one day you'd happen by You'd hear my faint fond cry And you'd reach out And you'd pick me in need Then I'd finally feel your lips again And ask me how my time was spent And I'd say, girl you I'd treat you right So let me nourish your body Chew easy, swallow softly Let me break down And let our bodies reunite See, I would wait for you He just asked me to Till my body's laying low Cold in the ground That was the lowest pair right here on Livewire. Their latest album, Horse Camp, is available now. All right, that is going to do it for this week's episode of the show. Thank you so much to our guests, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, Saeed Jones, and the lowest pair. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this week to Amanda Bullock and the fine folks at the Portland Book Festival. 
Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our marketing manager is Paige Thomas. And our production fellow is Tanvi Kumar. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Christian Fulgham of Shoreline, Washington, and Sarah Doan of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of LiveWire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.